Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Vi har i den her uge talt med en forfatter med en helt usædvanlig og opsigtsvækkende historie, men samtidig også med en utroligt bred og almen fortælling. Det er den kinesiske forfatter Su Sinran, som ud fra sin egen oplevelse af at vokse op i Maos Kina, opleve åbningen mod verden og siden blive tvunget til at flygte fra landet, har interesseret sig for vilkårene for de kinesiske kvinder i landet og i byerne, under den hårde kommunisme, under det, der er markedskommunisme i dag, og gennem adskillige bøger har afdækket kvindelivets vilkår, den vold, kvinder bliver udsat for, den disciplinering af deres kroppe, der finder sted, den måde, kvinder i hver eneste generation på nye måder er blevet undertrykt på. Hun gør det på en temmelig original måde, i det hun altid fortæller kvindernes historie gennem deres egne fortællinger. Su Sinran blev født i Beijing i 1958. Da hun var kun 30 dage gammel, blev hun forladt af sine forældre. De forlod hende ikke, fordi de var onde eller dårlige mennesker. De forlod hende, fordi de var gode kommunister. Det var ni år efter, at formand Mao var kommet til magten, og Kommunistpartiet sad på regimet i Kina. Formand Mao havde sagt, at man skulle sætte lojaliteten over for partiet, over lojaliteten over for sine børn og sin familie, og det gjorde Sinrans forældre. De gjorde, som de havde fået besked på, og efterlod deres datter alene tilbage. Men Kommunistpartiet stolede alligevel ikke på forældrene. Kommunistpartiet udsatte forældrene for massiv mistillid, og den datter, som blev forladt af sine forældre, blev tvunget til at vidne imod dem, da hun voksede op. Fordi hendes forældre talte fremmede sprog, var Kommunistpartiet overbevist om, at de var landsforrædere, at de var spioner for fremmede magter, og de bankede Sindran dag ud og dag ind for at få hende til at tilstå på sine forældres vegne, vel at mærke de forældre, som hun dårligt nok kendte. Sindran ledte derefter et hårdt liv på forskellige hjem, hvor hun blev udsat for forskellige typer for mishandling, indtil hun i slutningen af 70'erne og starten af 80'erne tog en universitetsuddannelse. I 1989 fik hun enestående chance, da hun fik sit eget radioprogram på kinesisk radio på en helt særlig kanal, som var blevet oprettet af den kinesiske stat for at kunne blokere signaler udefra. Kommunistpartiet havde været meget optaget af, at kineserne ikke skulle høre radio fra USA eller fra Taiwan, som talte om vestens lyksaligheder, og derfor havde de oprettet en kanal, der kunne forstyrre det signal. Det var den kanal, som Sinran i 1989 fik lov til at tale på. De gav hende et program fra kl. 10 til 12 om aftenen, hvor hun kunne få lov til at tale lidt om sit eget liv, sine oplevelser og lidt om kinesisk historie. De troede, at der ikke ville være nogen, der lyttede til programmet. Det var ligesom et alibi, for nu har vi en lille smule åbenhed, og her sidder en kvinde og kan tale frit. Hun var selvfølgelig underlagt alle mulige forskellige former for censur i fem forskellige instanser, men alligevel, hendes program blev sendt direkte. Det Sinran oplevede, da hun fik sit eget radioprogram, det var, at folk ikke var gået i seng. Det var, at folk over hele Kina lyttede til hendes program om aftenen, og det var især kvinder. Og de skrev breve til hende. De skrev i hundredvis af breve hver eneste dag til Sinran for at fortælle om deres egne lidelser, de forskellige former for undertrykkelse, de var udsat for, den måde, de skammede sig på. Og de skrev næsten alle sammen, at de var dårlige kvinder, fordi de ikke kunne gøre deres mænd tilfredse. På den måde fik Sinran et enestående indblik i kvinders forestillinger om sig selv og deres plads i samfundet, deres skam og deres skyld. Hun begyndte at rejse ud i landet, tage ud og besøge kvinderne. Hun blev eskorteret af politimand, for det kunne være farligt at tage ud i landet. Der var mange, der hadede hende, når hun kom, fordi de så hende som en frigør fra byerne. Men der var også mange, der så hende som en redningskvinde, som en hjælp. Således arbejdede Sinran i otte år som vært på et af de mest lyttede radioprogrammer i Kina. Som en slags feminist i en ny tid. Som en udforsker af kvinders forhold. Men hun blev også udsat for flere og flere trusler. Flere gange var der nogen, der forsøgte at slå hende ihjel. Og i 1997, der forlod hun Kina. Hun rejste til Storbritannien. Og da hun i Storbritannien mødte flere og flere, der mente, at kinesiske kvinder ikke havde nogen følelser, så blev hun vred. Hun blev så vred, så hun begyndte at skrive historier om kinesiske kvinder. Hun samlede alle de historier, hun havde fået på sin radiokanal og udgav dem i 2002 i bogen The Good Women of China. 
Bogen blev en kolossal global bestseller. I dag er den oversat til mere end 50 sprog. Siden har Sindran udgivet flere bøger om kvindeliv i Kina, hvor hun undersøger alle mulige forskellige dele af kvinders skæbne. En fortælling handler om alle de piger, der bliver slået ihjel straks efter, de bliver født under etbarnspolitikken, fordi forældrene vil have en dreng, og når de kun kan få et barn, er der ikke råd til at få en pige. Så Sindran har interviewet jordmøder om, hvordan man druknede de her piger. En anden bog handler om fire forskellige generationer af kvinder, der fortæller deres liv og om deres egen seksualitet. En tredje bog handler om de mødre, der forlod deres børn, og den er skrevet til de kinesiske børn, der blev efterladt af deres forældre. På den måde har Sinran gjort sig selv til de efterladte, de mishandlede kinesiske pigers store fortællere i verden. Det var en kæmpe ære at få lov til at tale med Sinran. Hun taler ikke fuldstændigt og aldeles flydende engelsk, men jeg vil stærkt opfordre jer til at hænge på alligevel, for det er nogle helt enestående fortællinger, hun kommer med i den her samtale. Well, first of all, thank you for your books. They've taught us a lot about China that we really would not have known without them. They've opened our eyes to parts of Chinese life that are very often ignored. And most of all, of course, we learned a lot about Chinese women through your work. So I just want to start by thanking you for your efforts, for your work, for all the women you've given voice to. Thank you for that. And there, there's a, in, in the beginning of one of your books, you, you mentioned an answer that you gave to the international book friend Melbourne in 2002. And I was so impressed by that answer. You were asked, what was your dream? And you responded to be a daughter. Uh, how was that your dream? Well, that still is my dream. In July, I just had my birthday. And uh, so far, I still haven't any birthday with my mother. And my father passed away in 2016. And uh, my mom's still alive. I left them. I was sent away when I was uh, 30 days old. And because they both need uh, to devote their life and time to Communist Party. So I never had a chance to be a daughter. And then possibly I never know how to be a daughter until, I would say, until I met my later husband. And uh, he gave me uh, some kind of love. I feel is very first as from the men, the both like a father or a husband or even brother, something like that. So that's still my dream. Thank you. It's very beautiful in the book when you describe how there's a woman hugging you afterwards, saying that that, yes. that she takes you in. This is not a history that's unique to your family, that the parents abandon the child. And you say that millions of Chinese believe that it was selfish to put your children and family before their country. What was the situation for children when you grew up in China? Well, uh, when I grew up in China from late 50s all the way to the 77 when I went to the university, uh, actually it's until end of the uh, Cultural Revolution in 1976 or 79. That period of Chinese, I think we didn't have very much family things. Even the living condition in the city for the people working in the factories or big companies or governments, uh, they all live in the, it's kind of dormitory with a man together or women together. Even they have the family, they're very, um, they had a very limited uh, small space to live. So for many children, we brought up by this kind of no family, at all. So in my case, because my parents both come from a very wealthy family, uh, which is uh, uh, judged as a black family. So I had uh, no rights to live or to play with other people on the, in the family. Uh, even my grandmom, um, I didn't have any chance. Both of them punished to death uh, during the Cultural Revolution. 
So I think I'm not only person in that period. I would say more than 80% of the city people living in that kind of situation. In the countryside, because they are very, how do you say, very poor, also their life is based on family working together. So the situation may be better than us, yeah. At that time, when you're growing up during the Cultural Revolution and you were just a, a child and this was the first impression of the world, what did you think of the Cultural Revolution at the time? Well, I had no idea. I was too young to understand that. Um, this is still is nightmare in my today's life. I had uh, so many bad dreams about this. I was seven and a half years old. When the Red Guards told me my grandparents drink people's blood as they ride wine, and my parents, and um, they could speak a foreign language, they are international spy, and they are the enemies of Chinese. I didn't believe that because I was too young, and I was forced to write as a big write down the sentence paper say I hate you because you drink our people's blood as your wine for your pleasure. I wrote this piece for Red Guards. I didn't know until 10 years later I learned from my father. They put this paper on the backside of his prison jail room all the time. So I had no information, no education, no knowledge to find out what's right, what's wrong. But for me, only things I realized was wrong was I didn't do anything wrong, but I was beaten almost every single day. And we stayed in the room with another, um, including my young brother, with another 12 kids uh, nearby Beijing. and. Uh, Every single night, uh, red guards come to us and they pick up one child beaten next door. This is the last about six and a half years. So this is why this has become a part of my life. In daytime, I can control myself so well and keep smiling and keep uh, you know fighting or keep my writing or working. But in the night, I always come back that dream and uh, scared someone come to me and scared I was the next one to be beaten up uh, because that was six and a half years and never stopped. So it's very hard, even today, it's very, very hard for me to spend the night to get through that, very hard. Yes, it is a, an extraordinarily brutal story, and we almost feel the horror today when you when you when you tell about it. And thank you for your clarity and your courage to talk about it. Then you grew up and got an education, and you got a, a radio program. What was your educational path after this? Well, I think that in my life, my education, I would say, part of the, that is academic, as everybody had. I had this education in the university and for five years. But I think more than that, far more than that, is my personal experience. I would say cultural revolution is part of the study course in my life. And the more important is I learned from Chinese people through my interviews, through my radio program, and through my research. Um, to learn about education. So the first things I realized, I needed to learn my country and my people because everything I learned from my university or my silence, the childhood, uh, is nothing about the truth of my country that time. So when I went to the countryside the first time as a journalist, I was very, very shocked by how poor people's life in the countryside and the huge gap between the city and the countryside and also 
And from the letters people sent to me and uh, how suffered or how painful or how, how do you say, upset in their lives. So that become my second or self-education, how to understand my country and my people. Until now, I think until today, until this week, I'm still working on that. I'm still learning on that. That is big education in my life. I think, especially in the 60s and the 70s, we heard a lot in Denmark about the Communist Party and women's liberation in China. And there was a, there were leftist people here in Denmark who also saw that it was a wonderful place to be a woman, that that the Communist Party was securing equal rights for, for, for women and enabling women's liberation. What was your situation as a young woman growing up in communist China? As a woman, everybody, I think, heard about Mao Zedong's condition, and he said the Chinese woman should hold half sky. So this movement or this belief started from the 1950s when Chinese government, uh, Communist Party took over from uh, 1949. And uh, many people believe that. I would say in the cities, in China, we have uh, 665 cities. And in the cities, uh, many people who are educated, which is a very small percentage of Chinese women at that time, we believe that it's like my mother, okay? She believed that her life had the right to hold half a sky, had a job as same as a man. But that time, and the more than 80% or maybe 85% of Chinese population is in the countryside. And the Chinese women in the countryside, they didn't have any chance. Even today, uh, you know, many people being transferred into this kind of modern China and modern education and the women's rights beliefs. But if you go to countryside, I'm not joking. I went to China end of the 2019 and early uh, all the way until uh, February of 2020, I saw that in the countryside and I visited uh, in the countryside. I interviewed in the countryside. There's many people in the countryside. Their situation hasn't changed at all. But I have to say, Chinese women in the cities have been changed so much in the last 50 years. That's no question about that. Yeah. And from, you know, uh, they can be free marriage and uh, they can go to the universities, education, and uh, they can get a job. Um, because of single child policy, uh, many girls and even become, uh, how do you say English or say, wear trusses in the family. It's become a more powerful in the family uh, because of single child uh, policy. But again, so what is the situation for women? Uh, to be liberated or to be improved in their life, I would say at the moment it's very difficult to give the clear image because China changes so fast. And for many Chinese women from a countryside to the city, as laborers work or as migrants, they just uh, spend their time to do the very hard work for better living condition for their children. But for themselves, they didn't have very much chance to be educated, uh, to be improved uh, for themselves. Um, it's quite complicated to see the situation. Very much it depends on who they are, where they are. If they are in the city like Beijing, Shanghai, you will see their life is like a queen. You travel. And two hours, you know, by the car, you will see their life is like a slave. Yeah, it's very difficult to see that. Yeah. I think something that's often hard to understand for us Westerners about China is that on the one hand, you've seen such dramatic changes in Chinese society over the last generation. It's almost like every generation is growing up in an entirely new country. Mm. And, th and then on the other hand, you have this very long tradition, this very long history. I mean, in Denmark, we think of ourselves maybe in a two, 200 year, 
300 years span of time, not more than that. America, 250 years. But there's also something that's constant in, in, uh, in, in Chinese history, over 2,500 years. Uh, and, and one of the things that you mentioned is this obedience and, and obedience and virtue. You write about the three obediences and the four virtues of Chinese women. Can you tell us about that? Well, yes. And uh, the first things for Chinese, when a uh, Chinese girls, when they are grow up, you know, grandma, uh, mother or mother always tell them, okay, the three things you must do is listen to your father, listen to your husband, and listen to your son. <laughs> yeah. So this is become like I would say it's like a culture genes, you know, part of the culture genes. Another thing we always say, you know, um you never show other people your weakness, you never show other people emotion, you never speak loud in the public, you never actually more than four. It's quite a lot. But like in my childhood, my grandma, you know, always said to me, even you have a meal together, boys can play sometimes with the, the table items. The girls always sitting there uh, properly. So this is a part of our girls' education. But in this kind that we call the tradition, and they're still going on in China. And today, in today's China, in the city, uh, many Chinese women, I would say, <laughs> they go another way around. Yeah, they completely against it. And um, how do you say, break the rules. Yes. Sometimes I, I would say a little bit over. Yeah, overuse <laughs> that. Yeah. They didn't care about family many, uh, values and they didn't care about, you know, marriage. And uh, some of the mothers scared away when they found that they couldn't uh, brought up their kids in the poor condition. This has become a, quite common and shocking for me in China, in poor rural China. And lots of women left their children to the cities for their own life. So children being left behind to the elders. Yeah, that is never happened before. So that is, it seems almost like a cultural revolution in itself. Then you had this radio program, which became your kind of public breakthrough, which was called Words on the Night Breeze. Can you tell us, how did you get that radio program? Well, quite a difficult at that time uh, because China, everybody knows, China, the end of the Cultural Revolution from 1976. Then until 1980s, China uh, decided to open themselves to the world. But uh, in fact, uh, media and education or public, uh, how do you say, publishing house or religions, this kind of field is always controlled by central government. So by 1988, and the Chinese government tried to lose control to the radio. The one of the government radio was uh, we called a military channel to Taiwan. They tried to use the technical knowledge to stop people listen to uh, BBC or ABC or CNN or Taiwan or whatever, even include Hong Kong. So the everyday, they send out this disturbed message. So by the two, uh, by the 1988, they decided to use this channel for culture and uh, economies. So they tried to select just people from a whole China. And so I was one of the seven women uh, selected from 40,000 people. So we passed the 10 exams from a paperwork and uh, knowledge writing, interviews or arguments or dancing exams. So finally we got there, um, but it was very, very difficult for me, uh, for anyone, 14 of us, seven men and seven women, because we had a three months training for 
being ready. The three months of training, the first thing is the forbidden list. What we can't talk. Okay, so that long list, almost like a book. Okay, Western, yeah, Western culture, Western media, Western names, include Christmas or Easter. And uh, what we can't talk about the modern China, include any history after 1911, um, and uh, all these kind of things. So we have to remember that, then this is definitely forbidden. And secondly, and for this kind of live program, we had this kind of very, very strict censorship. Yeah. So before our program, before 1980s, all of the radio program or even television, they have to pass the five levels of censorship until allowed to be sent out. So my um, program was the only one that time allowed me talk uh, by myself alive. But it was uh, quite uh, uh, scary because uh, they set up a program in the midnight between the 10 to midnight because we thought at that time no one had a television or radio and peasants went to bed very early you know, maybe no one listened to. So that's safe. So they gave me the time, allowed me to talk about foreign music and history books and a little bit, you know, my personal feeling about daily life. Actually, only allowed me about 10 minutes. But that 10 minutes really gave me big, big hit. And... Um, I didn't know how to do it. So I started my program say, okay, I'm Xinran. You know, this is a new way to talk to you. I hope my radio can send you a little brief in your life. Open the tiny window, get people talking, conversation. So the first things I want to share with you is my son. You know, half years old, a baby boy. So that's it. But later, I got letters coming just three or <laughs> five days. People hated me. And they said, oh, your voice is, is uh, capitalist, too soft, not a communist revolution voice, the first thing. <laughs> Secondly, they said, how dare you talking about love? You think love is, you know, I was really shocked. I said, I love my son. <laughs> not I'm a mother. So even someone sent a knife and a bullet to me. So I was a bit lost. I didn't know what's, a, you know, how to react to this. And I, I never knew people really listened to my program so seriously. But that took me, I think, more than, I would say, more than half a year or eight months to really getting to understand what kind of listeners of my program. Actually, they are women. The most are, they are women, yeah. And then after half a year, your show becomes what we would call a hit. Today, you receive a lot of letters. And then you, you write in one of your books, I had believed that I understood Chinese women. Reading their letters, I realized how wrong my assumption had been. So I have the impression that this was also like a lecture for you on the lives of Chinese women. Uh, what what did you learn about the lives of Chinese women? Well, um, as you just mentioned, in my daily letters, I had uh, at least more than one or two, I think 200 letters <laughs> um, every single day. So I had a 10 university students help me, help me to open the letters in case someone, you know, urgent needs help. But in the letters, I was very shocked that by first few months, I realized that and the 90% of letters from the women, in those women's letters, almost, I would say almost 99% of them said they're not good women. Because uh, they are not happy by the family, they disappointed by the uh, husband, or they are, you know, never being respected, or never being cared about, or being beaten, 
uh, all these kind of things. So that really shocked me. That the reason I feel so strongly, I think the first thing is I had a similar feeling during the Cultural Revolution because everybody hated me. I was a little child. I didn't do anything wrong, but people said I was a bad girl because of my family. Another thing is those women, they are victim. You know, they're beaten. They suffered by family violence, but they thought they are fought. They had no idea. It's by this kind of culture, tradition, or society problem. And also, I, other things I was very, how do you say, struggled about. There is no society, no organization, and no such a system help them to avoid it, to against it, to fight with that. So they're completely living alone, so struggled. So this is why later on, when I learned from the United Nations, when the report come out in 2005, uh, 2002, they said a Chinese woman commit suicide is top, in the top of the world. So I, I really understand from you know the letters and the people calling about a nine years program, on almost a 10 years program. I really learned the why and how much they suffered from this kind of daily lives. Yeah. And, and, and you also relate in your book, in your books, in, in several of your books, that many of the questions that the women asked about was about their sexuality, that there was a, a shameful culture around the female sexuality, that it was almost like breaking new ground with these women to have them ask questions about sexuality? Well, um, you know, Chinese society or Chinese history is very different from the Westerners, particularly Europe and Americas. You are rooted, uh, believe or not, uh, maybe I'm wrong, and by more about religion and the beliefs. Yeah, and your community, society, the families come from this kind of roots. But in China, we are much more, we never had a national religions until now. And we also, we never had science education all the way until 2000, uh, no, 1913. Okay, all the education, science education through the family pass on the generation to the male, not female at all. So sexual education is a part of this case. So the sexual education for girls never had until before your wedding day. Your mother will give you the box. The first thing is in the box, there's some papers or pictures or the items. The mother will explain this is a sexual you know, tools, how you use it. Then second one was uh, the wedding bed. When you're sleeping on that traditional or wealthy family, the bed, they have inside of the, the bed, they had woodcut images. Is how your behavior between the man and the woman. So that is the second education. The third is sexual education, I would say, is give birth to the babies, you know, the pregnancy. You learn from that. So for many, many Chinese, they don't have, they didn't have this knowledge before 1980s or before the Party Revolution. And China started sexual education from 2003. So in this case, many countryside, they still carry on the very traditional, very crude way to believe in that kind of sexual behavior, you can have a son, you can produce a son. So that's, a, I was really shocked by this kind of situation, you know, and uh, I went to uh, particularly not one area along the river Yellow and around, along the river Yangtze, both had this kind of big population and there's local customs. And in the countryside, I still believe in the mountain area, they're still using this kind of sexual abuse. I would say the sexual abuse. They believe this is a, can bring the boy. You, when you, are became, when you were the radio presenter and you received all these letters, and you also became some kind of an authority 
someone that people trusted and people called on you to intervene in, in different situations. And you sometimes went out to see people that you heard uh, that, that you had received letters from. How, how did this change your life personally, becoming this radio presenter on Words on the Night Breeze? Uh, well, at the beginning, I had no knowledge and no experience. I learned from people's needs, particularly first things from the letters. So people wrote a letter to me and like some students or some peasants write very, wrote a very short letter and suddenly stop and say, oh, I can't say anymore because I don't have a sweet potatoes or potatoes. So that time I didn't understand what I mean. So when I find the truth, the answer, the fact, by my interview or by my journey to the village, I realized because many people, they never been educated. They didn't know how to write and read. So they pay the potatoes and the sweet hmm. potatoes to the a student, like a middle school student to write letter for me. So that very expensive letter. So I learned the first things from those letters. Then later on, when I realized my country, my people is not same as the place I grew up in Beijing or in the big cities. So I should learn on my feet by my own eyes. So I'm sweet a policeman to give me support. As a thanks return, I run this kind of special program for them to help them to run this kind of highway system and knowledge. So they gave me the police car and the police driver. So when I interview or I went to the countryside, that's quite a dangerous experience. Partly because I'm a woman, I had no right to stay with a man in the same room. So I have to stay with a woman, sometimes with animals, with pigs or cows. So that was very hard, scared, because sometimes you wake up by the pig, uh, just you know, touching your face, quite scared. And also countryside people, they hated me. Include the women, they really hated me because I went there for the women to like a one story, the one choose uh, uh, story happened to me. I got a letter said that one woman, uh, she suffered a lot and because her husband put a chili into her body every time when they're being together. And because the Local people believe this kind of chili can help you breed a boy, produce boy. So this woman nearly died and very serious. So someone wrote a letter to me say, oh, Sina, I know you always come to the countryside to see us, to help women. Could you come to our village uh, to help this woman? When we arrived with a policeman, with a doctor, I brought a doctor there as well. So that was a, a late afternoon, almost evening. So the doctor gave the woman exams. Then the doctor said, oh my God, I have to take the woman to the city, to the hospital. Her body, okay, is completely, you know, is in the dangerous, bleeding and also with lots of the wounds in there. And also they needed to take a chili out of the body as well. So at the same time, we decided the next morning, we take the woman to back to the city. Then we had a meal because a man had a dry food, which is like a steamed bread or something. I had no right. So I only had a soup. So I had that soup less than 10 minutes. I started bleeding. So I was sent to the hospital nearby the police, uh, the soldiers, the military one. So they discovered I was poisoned. So they went back to, the policemen went back to the village. So they found it was the daughter's mother and they put a poison in my soup. So they arrested the woman and I was saved from, you know, the doctors. I was deep hurt by her. So when I asked her, I said, why you did you do this to me? I come here for saving your daughter, rescue your daughter, help her, but you tried to kill me. 
I never forget what she said to me. She said, "You are the city idiots. You think you are the god come to city to help my daughter. If you left, my daughter could be killed by the village men because she has to produce the boy for the family trees. Otherwise, she's useless. So I have to protect her in this way. I have to stand on my village side." To kill you, so that happened again, again during my interview in the countryside. Even some peasants come to my driver, police driver, say, "Can I buy this woman?" I thought it was a joke. Then the police driver said, "Not joke. They can kidnap you, and、uh, you know." So that was the experience that helped me to really understand this situation in the countryside. We didn't know, and no one talked about this, and no such a society helped them. And also, for many people, they shame to talk about this, include the women themselves. Is this also a, a, after you you were you have been presenting words on the night breeze for some years? Then in 1997, you left China, and I imagine it must have been awfully painful、uh, for you, considering the work you were doing for women in China,、uh, how important your program was to a lot of people. What were the circumstances that led to you leaving China? Well,、uh, I decided、uh, to leave China was on the 16th of February 1997. The reason was the day before, I ran the program, and the woman Corinne was crying, and、uh, she said to me, and、uh, she killed her own daughter, and she want to die. She feel deep guilty, and she want to die. She come from a countryside. I thought I tried very hard to talk to her, try to save her life. But next day, on the sixteenth of February, and the policeman come to me and said to me, they found a body. Ah,、uh, was the woman and the hand? There is a paper in the hand. It's like a you know my radio station pressure and the papers. So there is blood and the finger mark on my face. So this is why they come to the. Radio station. So we didn't know、uh, what happened. So we normally we record my program、uh, for helping people for the censorship for anyway. Then we chasing the telephone number. Then we found was、uh, that woman called me. So I feel very very guilty about this and.、Um, There are about four women during my nine years radio show on commit suicide, and、uh, I think、um, all of them try to contact me. Or sometimes I didn't reach get their letters, or something I didn't know, but whatever. And、uh, I know they knew me, but I didn't save them. So even I was,、uh, you know, many people think I was very successful. Quite a bit,、uh, something like celebrities in China, but I didn't see myself in that way. I feel that I'm the loser. I failed because I couldn't save the life. I couldn't sleep. The voices, the letters, and the people I interviewed so disturbing to my sleep. I couldn't sleep. I took more than like six, seven pills every night. So the doctor said you have to go. You know you have to leave your program, and also you should leave country because you're being surrounded by the, this kind of surroundings that we call the qi. You know Chinese believe that. So, also that time, I think、uh, I felt my own mass,、uh, marriage as well as a bad woman, and my husband,、uh, ex-husband, went to someone else. That is not a real that time because I didn't know that. That really made me to leave was、uh, that woman died. So I thought, okay, I should have a break. 
I didn't realize I would stay in the UK, and I came here only for my uh, grandfather searching because my grandfather and mother used to work for British GEC company. So I thought I had a time to search in our roots about their life here. Then later on, I realized here gave me the space and the blue sky to breathe, to show my emotion, and to give me a chance to represent to Chinese women's voices. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so when you came to the UK, you were not part of the radio station anymore. You were not interacting directly on a daily level with Chinese women in all sorts of distress. Then you started writing books instead. So it's like you took the voices, and and I should say for those who did not read read your books that they are very much you are giving voice to women who are never heard. It's not. It's very much other women's stories that you compile and you tell. How did you start writing these books that have become incredibly successful now? Translate into fifty languages, I think. Yes, thank you. Um, when I came here, I have to say I struggle with my English. I struggle with my knowledge of the Western system. I struggle how to find a flat and how to get the you know learn the English or to have some uh, basic job to keep the my life on. And uh, but one thing's really got me, and I had a part time job in SOAS, a uh, uh, London uh, school of uh, Oriental and Asia study. And uh, I had a part time um, job there for uh, Western and UK diplomats and uh, other students from uh, around the world. So they always uh, Ask me the question about uh, why Chinese women had uh, no feeling, no emotion, no <laughs> laugh, no dress up, no all this kind. You know, I was a bit uh, annoyed by that, or later on become angry about this until the one student showed me the book. In the book, talk about the modern China culture in the very obviously in the book said Chinese women had no emotion cells and that they don't care about dress they don't care about food they don't care about the love and the husband or blah 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 and even their own bodies I was really angry by that because I know Chinese women from this kind of hard life even from nothing they know what the beauty is. So I told that student a story. I met a woman in north of the River Yellow, north side of the River Yellow, in the very poor mountain area. When I was there, arrived there, I was really shocked by how poor the village is. It's nothing, even no color there. Then I saw tiny, shining yellow pots come to me one by one. Then. I found was the woman wearing these yellow flowers on her hair, but her body wore just a piece of the clothes, so stinking, and the clothes are so dirty, and uh, you know, you, you get you can't see the basic colors at all. So I was very surprised that by these yellow flowers, beautiful. So I just say, oh, hello, where did you get these beautiful flowers? Then this woman look at me. The very, very sharp eyes say, Are you a woman? I said, Of course, I'm a woman. <laughs> and she said, Okay, if you are a woman, you know how to find the beauty from nothing. I thought, I was very, you know, stunned there. I said, How? I don't know why I asked like this. So she took my hand to the, uh, the foot of the mountain between the rocks between the rocks, the tiny yellow flowers there that I never ever forgot she said. She said, that is a woman. Even we are living between the rocks, if we have a tiny lines, a tiny space, we can grow up the beauty. So that is something, you know, it's for Chinese women. Also we have a 
5,000 or 3,000 years of civilization, our art, music, you know, uh, the silk or, you know, all of these things, the Westerners had no idea. So I said to my student that moment, I said, I'm going to write a book. Until you read it, your tears for Chinese women, your touch for them, and you want to meet them. So, so this is why I started writing nonstop like a mad. So when I finished that, I was very touched by my own story because they are all real. Their voices, their image, their body language, they all come back to me, become the powerhouse of my writing. Yeah. Well, and I want to thank you for that, Sinran. I can tell you that you've given life to a lot of Chinese women and you've taught us all a lot about the dramatic inner life, struggles, shames, beauty, and happiness, misery of, of Chinese women. You've given so much to us from Chinese women. And thank you so much for taking your time and talking to us today. And thank you for your work, Sinran. Oh, thank you. Thank you for giving the chance to the space and the voices of, of Chinese women. They are much better than before, um, but uh, they still need to come back our roots. And uh, thanks thank a lot. you. Bye. Bye. Det var min samtale med den kinesiske forfatter, Sinran. Og hvis man får lyst til at læse hendes bøger, vil jeg foreslå, at man starter med bogen, der hedder The Good Women of China, som ligesom er hendes hovedværk. Og derfra kan man bevæge sig igennem den. Den her udsendelse var produceret af vores gode venner hjælper, Mads Adam Wiener. I næste uge, der skal vi tale med en anden ven af podcasten, nemlig den bulgarske forfatter og europaanalytiker Ivan Krastev, der har lavet to store analyser i år af verdens holdning til Ukrainekrigen og europæernes holdning til krigen i Ukraine. Jeg håber også, I vil lytte med i næste uge. Tak for nu. Mit navn er Rune Løber.